0: In 957 BC, God's people, the Israelites, constructed a grand temple to display God's glory among the surrounding nations. Under the leadership of King David and then the architect and builder King Solomon, Solomon erected a great and glorious temple. The Bible tells us that upon the completion of Solomon's temple. That when Solomon prayed for God's glory to be shown. That the temple, the Holy of Holies, the the innermost sanctuary was filled with the Shekinah glory of God. God's glory shown among his people. And they were in awe and worshipped God. God was present among His people in the most clearest and visible way they had ever experienced in their history. But Solomon's temple, just a few hundred years later, in 586 B.C., would be destroyed by the invading Babylonian Empire. Not many stones would remain, so much so that the Returning exiles coming back 70 years later would weep at the sight of it. But in 70 years, as God had promised in the exile in 515, these returning Israelites would begin a construction of a second temple. Haggai records that when they laid the foundation of this second temple, the people actually wept. Because it was so much smaller than the grand and glorious temple that Solomon had constructed so many years earlier. But it wasn't its size that made the people weep most. In the second temple, there was something missing, and it wasn't its grandeur and greatness, it was God. The Bible never records a whisper. Of God returning to that temple. Under the leadership of Zerubbabel, the temple was constructed and sacrifices were begun again. But it wouldn't be many years later until another invading army would come and destroy yet this second temple. Not utterly destroying it to the point of extinction, but obliterating much of it. In no meaningful way, would they ever have complete possession of that temple again? Not since the time of Solomon had the Israelites really owned the temple. At least the land in which the temple sat on. Even when the returning exiles came and and built the temple, they didn't really own the land, the Persians did. No, Even in 20 BC when Herod began to remodel the temple... He did so only to appease the Jews, to pacify them, to try to get them on his side. Of course, in 70 AD, the temple was finally destroyed. Just as Jesus had promised and prophesied that the temple would be destroyed and that the people would scatter. So in 70 AD, this once centerpiece of the Jewish people was fully and completely eradicated by the invading Roman army. With the loss of the temple, what would ever become of worship of God? How would they meet with God? Well, of course, Jesus tells us that they would not meet with God through a building any longer or with a person. Or rather, with a person. It would be the eternal Son of God who would fill the temple with His presence. We Remember when Jesus was walking with His disciples throughout the Temple Mount and admiring its architecture and its beauty, Jesus seemingly called their attention away from this building and says, I'm doing something greater than this building. Something even greater than Solomon's temple would ever. Something more glorious and grander than really Solomon ever dreamed his temple of being. And that is this new temple of God. God is constructing a new temple. Not somewhere in the Middle East on the Temple Mount. But rather, for the last 2,000 years, God has been at work building a new temple. Not one that the eye could see, not a physical structure. But a people. A people, as we'll see this morning, that are called the temple of God. Well, Paul has been writing to encourage Christians and particularly these Gentile Christians that God has eternally elected and saved for his glory. Those who are once far off from God have been brought near through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The cross of Christ stands as that pinnacle point of God's redemptive purposes in Christ or in rather redemptive purposes in humanity. To unite every tribe and tongue and nation in Jesus. And as we celebrated in the resurrection of Christ last week. As we saw in God's word how the resurrection is that center point. The cross, death, life. As we celebrated in resurrection Sunday last week. So now we live in light of this new found life. Having now been justified by God. Having the fact that God is His wrath has been satisfied. The demands of the law fulfilled. We learn that Gentiles now enjoy full access to the Father through the Son by the Holy Spirit. And so Paul concludes this paragraph, uh, this section, uh, by, by really offering up several pictures for us to describe this new humanity. That he is creating through the gospel. This new, this third race, no longer Jew and Gentile, but a new human race, a completely different, made up of every tribe and tongue and nation, united together in one kingdom, in one family, in one body. Well, I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2 if you haven't already. We're going to consider here verses 19 through 22. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. Well, what's Paul's point here as he concludes this section? It is this, God has brought Christians near to himself by adopting us into his family, whereby he is making us into a temple, a place where he will dwell. God is taking those who are far and bringing them as close as he can. So close that he lives within them. And so the purpose of our time this morning is really meant to encourage us. To see how God has been uniting together believers over the last 2,000 years and beyond. God is at work uniting us to one another. And so Paul here uses three metaphors. uh, Three pictures, if you will. uh, To describe... Our union together with Christ. So Paul uses these three metaphors to describe our life together. Something invisible that we can't see, that we can't touch. Paul uses these to give them life. We see first that as Christians, we have become united citizens of God's new kingdom. In the second metaphor, we see that as Christians, we have become united members of God's family. And then thirdly, as Christians, we have become united pieces of God's holy temple. And so those are the three metaphors that we see here in the text. Citizenship, family, and pieces of a building. Paul hopes to help us understand. First, look at verse 19. Paul says that you have become united citizens of God's new kingdom. He writes there in verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Notice here. First, Paul continues by way of reminder he reminds them of what he began with in verses 11 through 13. Remember there, he said that you were once far off, but now you've been brought near once. You were not a people, but now you are a people as Peter says, once you were outside of the promise, now you're inside of the promise. And so Paul here is reminding them, Hey, remember what we just talked about the second ago, three weeks ago for us. He's saying that you were once strangers and aliens. Now you'll, uh, you might not aliens like UFO aliens, right? Aliens being sojourners, people who uh, are in a foreign land. Paul says, this is who you once were, but now notice what we are now. But now you are fellow citizens with the saints. Uh, Paul throughout Ephesians uses that phrase, the saints to mean Christians, all Christians from beginning to end right if you understand your bible god didn't have like plan a i'm gonna choose the jewish people and eh, that didn't work out well so we're gonna go to plan b no no it's always been one people from beginning to end that god is calling to himself and so what paul is saying here is that you have now been brought in as citizens of a new kingdom As Paul would write in Philippians 3.20, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is telling us that we are not second-rate citizens. There's not some sort of class, you know, there are the half-citizens, and then there's the full-citizens, right? No, no, no. There are only one type of citizen in the kingdom of God, and that is citizen, right? You are a full citizen with all the rights and privileges thereof. Well, we can begin to understand the great application that would come to us being citizens. We enjoy, in our country, tremendous freedom as citizens. You know, it's funny if you've ever traveled outside of the United States. Well, that's frankly when you get a little worried about citizenship, right? You don't really think about your citizenship. You're not walking around, I am an American. You, You don't do that probably on a daily basis. If you do, maybe you need help. But, um, but regardless, right, when we travel outside of America, that's when our citizenship becomes very important to us, right? Uh, if you're traveling around, you're going to check, hey, where's the nearest embassy? You know, because I'm running there if something goes crazy, right? Well, we enjoy certain freedoms, rights, privileges, so on and so forth that others do not have. Well, we understand then that metaphor continues. As citizens of God's kingdom, We have certain rights and privileges in this culture in Ephesus. You'll be reminded Ephesus is a Roman colony. Well, if you have ever read the book of Acts, you know that Paul, when he was in Philippi, getting beat in Philippi, you'll remember what happened. They got freaked out when they found out that Paul was a Roman citizen. We should have been touching him. In this culture, citizenship was valued highly. It was worn on the chest, just like we do in our culture. We value our citizenship, right? And Paul here is saying, by way of contrast, that yes, we want to value our earthly citizenship, but we want to rest, not in our earthly citizenship, but in our heavenly, our eternal citizenship, We want to rest in that. We want to to know that we are secure in God's new kingdom. We want to value as God's people that ultimately we are strangers in this world. We are just passing through. We want to value the fact that our home is in heaven. One author wrote it this way that we've been supernaturalized right so uh, we've we've been naturalized as citizens supernaturally Uh, we've become citizens of another kingdom and so this the citizenship is ours and so for us this morning ethnic diversity uh, racial diversity uh, class diversity in the kingdom of god is no more we're all equal citizens, regardless of our ethnicity, regardless of our language, our gender, regardless of our economic status or our educational attainment. In the kingdom of God, there are just citizens. Oh, this is why, brothers and sisters, it's so sweet to see uh, maybe someone who's marginalized in our culture serving in leadership in the local church. Because, see, in a culture that marginalizes certain people because of race or because of economic status or because of gender, but yet we see in the local church there's a place for that person. I remember a number of years ago, one of our local uh, churches, uh, was t- a path, the pastor was sharing with me a story. He was, they were ministering to Filipino uh, Americans. And when he came to the church, one of the things that he noticed in the church was that all the Filipinos were servants. They were all deacons. They were all in the various servants. They were the ones cooking and cleaning and doing all the work. Because in Filipino culture, servanthood is ingrained in the culture. And for that pastor, what he had to do is patiently teach those people, particularly those lazy Americans, uh, to stop allowing the people who naturally serve to serve. And to get them into leadership. You see, sometimes we can adapt cultural practices without even knowing it. And so, as a church, we want to understand our citizenship that creates equality among God's people. Through union with Jesus Christ, we have become united citizens together of God's new kingdom. But more than being citizens, as great as it is to be, say, our citizenship is in heaven. Paul's like, you know, that's cool. and It's great. And there's some great comfort to be brought from that. But let's get one step closer in the circle of intimacy. Not only have we been brought into God's kingdom. Not only have we, God said, hey, you could come into my kingdom. But he says, you know what? You can come into my house. Yeah, it's very different, right? To live in the same kingdom as the king. Oh, it's completely different, of course, to actually live in the castle, to actually live and and feast and dine and eat what the king eats. But Paul says that's exactly what God has done through Christ. Look at verse 19 again. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and and members of the household of God. In other words, your family members. God has adopted you into his family. Now, Paul here employs a particular pattern to emphasize this point. Uh, notice here in the first half of verse 19, he says, You're no longer strangers, right? Stranger is weird. Yeah. Stranger, stranger, right. get out of here. You're not welcome. You're not part of our family. And then aliens... So talking about our citizenship. So one is familiar, one is citizenship language. And then, so it's an A, B, B, A pattern. In other words, strangers goes with members and aliens goes with citizens. Does that make sense? Paul is doing this to emphasize that second point all the more. He's emphasizing, he's kind of putting a highlighter on. He says, listen, not only are you citizens, but you are family members. Once you were strangers, but now you are welcome at the table, right? So I love that song we sing, thank you, Jesus, right? Once an enemy, man, what? That's who I once was, but now welcome to your table. Once we had no family, no father, but now we have a father, brothers and sisters. We've been adopted into God's family. Well, this is what Paul began with back in chapter 1 and verse 5. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Perhaps you grew up without a father. Perhaps you grew up in a family where you didn't have brothers and sisters. We know that there are certain privileges that come with being in a family, right? If you've ever been in a family that's dysfunctional, uh, you feel the really weight and desire to have some functionality, um, some leadership, some guidance. Paul tells us in Romans 8 that we have been adopted by the spirit into the family. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The most intimate word that we could utter to God, the eternal God of the universe, is Father course, as the Lord led us to pray, our Father who's in heaven. Brothers and sisters, we cannot emphasize enough family language as a congregation. This is why we call one another brothers and sisters. It's not because we, well, maybe it is because we don't know their name. But <laughs> primarily, it should be to express what we believe has happened to us in Christ. That every tribe, tongue, and name, you don't look like me. You don't sound like me. You don't got money like me. You don't have this like me. No, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We're family. We're brothers and sisters. And brothers and sisters, let me remind you this morning, there are no stepchildren in God's family. This is a great mystery. Because if you read your Old Testament, it seems as if there was no hope for us Gentiles. Oh, but God had a plan from the beginning. And he whispered that plan to Abraham. He says, "Abram, through you, I will bless all the nations. A little glimpse of what we get in Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we are full-fledged members of God's family. With all the rights, privileges thereunto. The same blood, the blood of Christ flows through our veins as, as one Author wrote, we don't need to be a white church or a black church, but a red church, right? That's how we often do it here in America. We're this kind and that kind and this and that. We're a contemporary church. We're a traditional church. I don't even know what that means. How can you be one, but yet be the same? We're a red church. The blood of Jesus runs through our veins. If there were such a DNA test that could be done on Christians and they were to test our DNA, well, friend, it would be the same DNA as Jesus. We would all have the same DNA, every single one of us. We are united together as a family. And so, therefore, let us act like it. Let's act like it. Are you tempted to racism as a Christian? Perhaps you are. Perhaps this morning you're tempted to look at someone externally and begin to come to certain conclusions. I trust that as a Christian, you might struggle with that because of you're a sinner, just like me and just like everyone else in this room. Do you struggle looking down on someone because of their education? Because they don't speak as eloquently as you do? you look down on a brother or sister because they don't know the Bible as well as you do. Perhaps you look down because of where they live, or they live over there. We should not be so naive and so foolish as to think the enemy can't tempt us. As Christians, we must not utter language like this world does. Oh, racism, that's old, that's over with. You know, we're, everything's good now here. Friends, you have to understand that, that centuries of racial inequality doesn't get washed away with a few laws passed in the 1960s. You understand that, right? You understand that this is a big issue that's going to take a long time to work out, and it can only work out through the cross of Christ. And the world's going to do its thing, and we can participate in that. But at the end of the day, we ultimately know that that unity comes only through Jesus. So we want to be really honest about our sin, but really hopeful in the gospel, knowing that in Christ we are a family, And I wonder, why churches get this reputation of being super dysfunctional? Why we get this reputation of, man, they're backbiters, they're gossips. And they'll just don't go down to the church. They'll hurt you down there. Could it be because the enemy has attacked our biological families for so long? Have you ever wondered why why Satan attacks the family so much? Why he goes after husbands and wives? Why you you see this sort of children like you know sort of rebelling? You ever wonder why? Well ultimately we trust it's because of sin. And if the enemy can distort the family, well then we trust that if we're called to be a family together in here, we're gonna be just as much dysfunctional. At the end of the day, brothers and sisters. We are a family. So we must act like it. We must serve one another. Like really brothers and sisters. Like I love you because you're my brother. You're my sister. This is why Paul exhorted Timothy. Treat those older women like mothers. And those older men like fathers. And those sisters don't be lusting after them. They're sisters. And those brothers... Just like you would care for your own brother and not want to see him get beat up in the world. Well, you rescue that brother that's caught in sin. Brothers and sisters, we are a family. We are in this together for eternity. And so let's get on with it. We have become united citizens and members of God's family. But Paul, seeming here to mix his metaphors a bit, he maybe didn't take uh, freshman English. Begins to mix his metaphors. And he goes from this sort of citizenship metaphor to a family metaphor. And then he starts to kind of mix it in with a temple metaphor. But what Paul's doing here, I want you to look here in the text again. It doesn't come out as clear in the English language. But throughout this, Paul compiles together words that all mean house. The root word of all these words that Paul is using throughout this text is house. Household. Notice what he says. So you are members of what? The household of God. Verse 20. Built on the foundation. Built. Uh, the, the word there is house, built. Uh, a house is built, right? The cornerstone. The house. The, the, the centerpiece. In whom the whole structure. House. Is being joined together. The house is coming together. The house grows into a temple. A, a house for the Lord. Well, and well, of course we live in houses, right? Dwell. In the house of the Lord. And so Paul here says that we're not only family members and individual members, right? United together. But he's saying that we're individual pieces that are being meld together, united together, wed together, built together into a house that holds the eternal God. We are being built together. Paul here uses this metaphor to emphasize the unity of the local church. Now he's going to build on this in chapter four. It's going to be very important for us to have this sort of theological underpinning when Paul begins to exhort in chapter four that we're to love one another. We're to love one another because we're united to one another, right? Or he'll say this in chapter five. He says, you know, what person hates his own body? Nobody hurts themselves. He says, that's that's crazy. They lock those kind of people up. So, why are you hurting your wife? Why are you hurting fellow members in the church? You're the same body. Well, here, Paul takes us on a tour. You've ever been to a construction site before? Maybe one that's beginning. Maybe you've had a house built, or maybe you've just driven by one. You're like, wow, you see the same kind of come together. At once it was just a a blank slate, and over time it just comes together, various pieces. Put it together and then you stand. Wow, look how awesome that is, right? What Paul does here in verses 20 through 22 is just kind of say, hey, come along with me. I'm going to take you on a tour of this new temple that God is building. First, he takes us and visits the builder, the architect. He says, come, let let me tell you about this architect and builder of God's temple. Look in verse 20 and 22. Paul makes clear, verse 20 that this temple is being built. Then in verse 22, in him you also are being built together. Paul uses words like build. (laughs) Something's being built. Well, Paul didn't mean to communicate that this just sort of happened out of thin air. Poof, it's built. But rather there's an agent behind it, an architect. And throughout, he's made clear in chapter one that the architect of this holy temple is none other than God himself. That God is the one who is building the temple. Therefore God owns the temple. He can do with what he wants with the temple. We are built together, joined together. It is God who is doing the work. This means that Gentile inclusion into the building was not an afterthought, but a part of God's eternal plan in Christ Jesus. That's why he can use these sort of eternal language. In eternity past, he chose us before the foundation of the world. God is the great architect and builder of this temple. But he moves on from the architect, from the builder, to the foundation. Of course, if you're going to build anything, you've got to start with the foundation, right? Um, however great the architectural plans are, you've got to build it on something. It's got to be built on a foundation. And he looks out and shows us that the foundation of the temple is laid upon the apostles' teaching. Look in verse 20. That God built this temple on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. In other words... God is building his temple on his word. When when Paul uses that, that phrase, the apostles and prophets, Paul is referring to two New Testament offices of apostle and prophet. The apostles were the ones who taught what Jesus taught them to teach. You remember in the high priestly prayer, Jesus says, hey, don't stress about what you're going to teach. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and you'll be able to teach. You'll be able to 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 describe, and and that's what the New Testament is. You've got the Gospels, you've got Luke giving us some history, and then all of the rest of the New Testament is merely an interpretation of what Jesus taught. It's the apostles' teaching. The apostles taught. This is what Paul reminded the church in Corinth. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Now the prophets... In the New Testament, we're not people who uttered strange utterances. They were people who prophesied God's word, preached God's word. They were heralders of the word of God, just like Old Testament prophets. Right? Old Testament prophets weren't just sort of looking up in the skies and trying to figure out, you know, the stars are aligned and, okay, this is what God's saying. No, all the prophets in the Old Testament did is point back to the law. God's word. They said, hey, you need to be following God's word. Hey, remember God's word? Remember that? Remember what he gave through Moses? You need to follow that. And so prophets aren't people who receive new revelation, but rather those who foretell revelation that's already been revealed. And so Jesus is telling us simply here in this text that he builds this temple on the preaching of his word. This, of course, is why Paul would exhort Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1. Preach the word, Timothy. I don't want you to come up with some grand marketing scheme down there in Ephesus. I don't want you to go down there and do this or that or whatever you think. I want you to preach the word. Not your word, not man's word, but the gospel, the word of Christ. Brothers and sisters, without the foundation of scripture, the whole structure crumbles. Just like Jesus said, if a man builds a house on the sand, it will collapse. If we build this church, the temple of God, I don't mean the structure, the people, on anything other than the word of God, we will crumble. And that's why you see so many so-called Christians crumbling under pressure because they're not built on the word. If we fiddle around with the scriptures, we mess around with it and, you know, cut and whatever. The whole edifice crumbles under the weight of this world. Change the word. You don't have a church anymore. Well, from the foundation, Paul moves our eyes to the centerpiece of the whole structure. The, the cornerstone was the piece that united everything together. Some think that this is a capstone, maybe the sort of pinnacle piece, or some keystone, something that unites on the corner. Regardless, Paul's emphasis here is that however important the foundation is, and it's very important, Paul makes clear that without the cornerstone, the whole thing just crumbles as well. Notice what he says here in verse 20. That it's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Without Jesus, nothing will be built. Without Jesus, we're just individual pieces. Jesus is the glue that holds us together. As I pointed to in the family language, so Paul here is emphasizing the same thing in just a different metaphor like the blood of Jesus that runs through our veins, so Christ is the one who glues us together. It's the mortar that holds the, the bricks and the individual pieces from, from crumbling one another. In modern architectural and building, when concrete is laid, they lay rebarb throughout the concrete, a uh, very intricate structure that's interwoven together, tied together, all of these steel bars running through the concrete. Then the concrete's poured. Without that rebar, the the concrete will crush under the weight of the building. The rebar reinforces the building. It holds it together. It glues it together. And brothers and sisters, Jesus is that glue, what holds you and I together as a family. Well, Paul goes on to not merely talk about the structural pieces, but, but to focus on the individual pieces. Notice what he says in verse 21. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. As our tour continues, Paul takes us to look at the various stones built within the structure. Stones that were once cast out into the valley of death have been, as Peter says, living stones. Built together, united together. This is what we heard our sister read earlier in First Peter chapter 2. That you and I have become living stones. Rejected by men, but united together. That we have been built up into a spiritual house. Various stones of various shapes and various sizes. Very different, not the same. They don't all look the same. Are fit together, one upon another. United together with the cornerstone. That we might be a... Holy temple. Brothers and sisters, Paul is emphasizing our union together. You can't get rid of each other. Paul is emphasizing something that so many Christians have experienced throughout the centuries. You travel anywhere in the world and you come across a Christian, and they may speak a different language and they may look different on the outside, but they're united. And there's a sense of union in your conversation and your love for the Lord and for Christ. Brothers and sisters, I cannot stress enough the importance of the local church for your life. You might think, you know, I can do this Christianity thing alone. I don't need the local church. The Bible seems to say something entirely different than your American understanding of personal autonomy and individualism. When you think you can do Christianity without a local church, without being a member of a local church, you have been fooled by this world who says that you can do things better alone than together. A world that says what matters most is what you want out of life. What matters most is your own personal autonomy. No one can tell you how to live and how to act and behave. What you're listening to is the whisper of that ancient serpent who tells you, you can live life your own way and, and succeed. Brothers and sisters, this is why we want to take membership so seriously. Why your presence on the Lord day is so essential. Not because we're like filling out some denominational form. Oh, wow. We had 50 because you ever realize that your presence isn't really about you, but about others. See, we're so accustomed to thinking that everything's about us. So when we show up in a place, we think it's about us. We're like, "This, the music's about me. Oh, that word was a, oh, that was a word for me. No, it isn't about you. It's about those around you. I've said often, you know how much encouragement I receive when I hear you knowing the struggles that you have in your life and the temptations that you're trying to endure, sing it as well? Or that word of encouragement that you give someone before church or that hug or embrace or or that meaningful, I'm going to pray for you this week. You realize that would not happen if you did home church by yourself. The TV ain't going to pray for you. Your cat's not going to pray for you. Brothers and sisters. Don't just show up to church, do church and leave. No, we're a body together. We want to give ourselves to praying for one another, to serving one another. Come with eyes open. Who can I serve today? Who needs a a warm embrace? Who needs an encouragement? Treat one another in a way that commends the gospel. Don't gossip. Don't tear down. Encourage. Brothers, love must be our motive in all that we do when we gather on the Lord's day. We must guard one another throughout the week from sin and Satan. Each time we gather. You know what this is? This is a foretaste of heaven. That's what it is. You are getting a down payment deposit on glory. You don't need to go and call up some little toddler and ask him what heaven's like. All you need to do is show up in here every Lord's Day. I'll tell you what heaven looks like. It looks like a 90 year old woman playing piano on the Lord's Day and 30 year old singing along with it. It sounds like brothers and sisters who were once captives to sin... Singing songs they would never have dreamed them singing, or opening a Bible they never. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Well, as our tour continues, Paul concludes in verse twenty-two. He steps back from looking at the greatness of these individual pieces to see whose name's written on the door of the house. When I grew up, my grandparents always had like the last name of, on the, I was always like, why, your neighbors don't really care that the Snyders live here, but whatever. Remember that? Maybe you were like that. Maybe you grew up in that, that time when you put your name on the outside. Everybody knew. You put it on your mailbox, right? The Johnsons live here. Okay, thanks for telling us. What Paul does is he steps back. God lives here. As he looks at the structure, he he sees that this whole thing is being built that God might dwell with his people. Who lives in that house down there? God, the Holy Spirit, Paul says. What God is building in the church is a place for himself to dwell, a place for him to live. In other words, God's whole building project is for one singular purpose and it is for God. For God's glory and his glory alone, he builds his church. In the beginning, we are told that Adam and Eve enjoyed uninterrupted, unmitigated access to God. God lived with them. But through sin, they were cast out of the garden, out of God's presence. They were kicked out of God's dwelling place because only holy people can be with God. But God in his grace had a plan to restore that broken relationship. First in the tabernacle, God would once again dwell among his people. Then in the temple, God would again dwell first in Solomon's temple, then in Zerubbabel's and finally Herod's temple. A visible representation of God's presence among his people. But God's redemptive plan continued in the person of Jesus Christ. So much so that the Apostle John says that Jesus' tabernacle dwelt among us. What was lost had been restored. God was once again among his people. But he was not yet done. In Revelation 21, as we began our services with, there was the promise And in Revelation 21, we see this amazing picture for which I bet many of you Christians would know streets of gold and glassy seas. And as the chapter unfolds, we see this giant cube fall coming out of the sky with all of these stones described in intimate detail, a beautifully built structure. And everybody's getting excited. They're like, oh, that's that's my mansion in the sky. No, it isn't, fool. It's you. It's me. You see, all those beautiful stones are those living stones. That perfectly square cube is meant to represent the holy temple that we are, that we will be in Christ. And friend, if you are not a Christian this morning, you remain an outsider looking into that. so I exhort you, repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. The all that we've been talking about can be yours today if you will trust in Christ. Believe on Him. And you can be a citizen of God's eternal kingdom. You, you can be a family member today. Not tomorrow, not sometime. Today you will be invited, adopted, full certificate. My child. If you repent of your sins and trust in God today, you become a dwelling place for him by His spirit. As we heard from Ezekiel, I promise I'll put my spirit in you. I'll be with you. you everywhere you go, I will be with you. In 1860s, Southern Baptists formed their very first seminary in order to educate and teach pastors and leaders in our denomination. And at the completion of the first class, graduating class, one of the professors and leaders of the seminary by the name of Basil Manley wrote a hymn in order to celebrate, to commemorate the event. In this particular hymn, entitled Soldiers in Christ in Truth Arrayed, has been sung by every graduating class since 1860. Every single student at the end of graduation stand together and sing this hymn. We meet to part, but part to meet, when earthly labors are complete, to join in yet more blessed employ an internal world of joy. It's an amazing picture that Manly paints. We meet to part and part to meet. It's the picture of the Christian life. The church is gathered, well, then it's scattered, and then it's gathered again, and then it's scattered. But at the end, we long for a gathering in heaven, a family. What Manly captures is what we've considered this morning. We're all citizens of a foreign land. We're all family members together. And we're building a united building that God is building that He might dwell among us. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that we would truly understand and know what it means to be a family. Brothers, sisters, citizens, and a holy temple. Father, I pray this morning that as Christians we would see the symbolism of what we're about to enjoy. That the Lord's Supper is a foretaste of the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're enemies from every tribe, tongue, and nation will be sitting around your table sharing and feasting on Christ. Let us affix that glorious image in our mind for your glory we pray in Christ's name. Amen.